Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Tim, thank you very much for reading for us, and good morning. It's very good to have you here. If you can, do keep your Bibles open at that reading from John chapter 13. It's page 1081 in the Pew Bibles, and let's pray together. Father, as we come and look this morning at this ancient moment when you gathered uh, in your son with um, his followers As we think about these uh, ancient events, we do pray that you would help us to believe what they mean for us this morning. Please help us to rejoice in the way that you reveal your love to us in your Son through this extraordinary moment in history. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. They say that absence makes the heart grow fonder. I guess that can be true in certain circumstances. Think of a young couple madly in love, torn apart for a day, brought back together again that evening, thrilled to be once again back in each other's presence. But as we come to John's gospel and start a new series that will take us up to Easter, we see a kind of absence that doesn't make your heart grow fonder. It's the kind of absence which leads to utter despair and devastation. Verse one from our reading sets the scene for us. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. I wonder this morning as we begin, if you could just um, think back to what's happened over the last three years in your life. Don't spend too long thinking about it. We'll be here for quite a while. But um, we just realized last weekend that we've been here in Sheffield for three years. It's a nice um, milestone. I wonder what's happened in your life for the last three years. I I want you to imagine if, 
for the last three years, you had decided to sell your house and give up your job and say goodbye to your family to follow one particular person as they traveled around the country, uh, often at times uh, sleeping rough, not sure where your next meal would come from, because in this one person you had found the one who held the key to all your hopes and dreams for the future. And so you were willing to give up everything to follow him. And in fact, you even believed that he loved you. And then he sits you down one Thursday evening and says, it's all over. I'm going to leave you. You will not see me again. It will be devastating. And that's how the disciples would have felt on this Thursday evening, just before the Passover, when their beloved leader, Jesus, whom they'd followed all that time, is going to announce to them, I am going to leave you and this world to go back to my father. It is devastating news. In fact, for the next three or four chapters, the disciples are going to be reeling from this news, unable to see a way forward, such as the uh, trauma at the announcement. This kind of absence is devastating as Jesus leaves his disciples. It's, I think, almost impossible for us to imagine how hard it would be in that moment. Except for us here today, 2,000 years later, If we're Christians here this morning, we also have decided to put all our hopes and dreams to the future into the hands of Jesus. We would be willing to give up anything to follow him. And yet at times, it does feel as if he is very absent to us and the world. We feel very disconnected from him. And particularly when our lives, with all our hopes and dreams, do not work out the way we thought they would. Perhaps we bring our lives to him in prayer and it feels as if the heavens are closed. Perhaps the world around us think that we are just crazy for following this man, Jesus, who's absent the whole time. And I wonder if in this absence, the most profound question comes to us. Does he really love me at all? And that is why it's so important that verse one continues Having loved his own, who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. That verse is like a banner that flies over the next few chapters. You see, it's Thursday night, just before the Passover, and by Friday morning, this Jesus will be dead, hung on a Roman cross. And John wants us to be crystal clear that these events, as they unfold, they are events of profound love, lest we miss the point. And it all happens in the context of a departure, of a coming absence, when the followers of Christ are most likely to doubt that he loves them. Here is the full extent of his love. Well, how does he show his love For his own. Well, verse 2. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been betrayed. Perhaps in the office context, a good friend that you thought was loyal to you turns out was actually talking about you behind your back all along, backstabbing you. How do you respond? Some, we run away. Perhaps others, we want to fight and confront them. What about Jesus? 
Verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. That is a lot of power. That's a lot of status. And so what would this one do to Judas? Verse 4. He got up after the meal. To what? To strike Judas? No. He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Here is Jesus revealing the full extent of his love for his own. On the eve of his departure, this is the one thing he wants them to understand about his relationship to them. And it does seem like a funny choice of moment to convey love. A foot washing. Why choose that particular way of expressing love at this most crucial moment in history? Well, this morning I want us just to to linger and dwell over this moment to unpack just how this reveals Christ's love for his own. I've got three points this morning. First of all, this washing, it is an outrageous washing. Back in the dust and grime of first century Jerusalem, foot washing was a necessary part of everyday life, but it was also disgusting. And you can imagine with livestock and animals free to roam around the streets. It wasn't just dust that you'd pick up on your feet. And so it was the job of the lowest slave in the household to clean the feet of the guests as they came. And so what happens after this meal is Jesus kneels down and washes his disciples' feet. This great one who's come from the Father, who has all power, it is a truly outrageous washing Growing up, um, when I was much younger, our, our family house was just next door to a charity which worked with children from broken backgrounds and doing great work. And um, at one point, they had a rebuilding project, and they closed down for a year, and then they reopened. And to celebrate the reopening, they announced a kind of grand um, celebration. And one of the patrons of the charity turned out to be Princess Diana, and um, she was invited to come and open this charity on our street. Amazing. And uh, we knew it was going to be a big deal because um, the week before they put up all kinds of railings and did lots of signs around. And then um, at one point, a policeman came to our door and um, started to quiz us about our um, attitude towards Princess Diana. We assured him that we were very peaceful. And then uh, he gave my dad a a secret password, um, which when they rang us up on the morning to see if we'd been held hostage by terrorists... And my dad could use the password if there was a gun pointed at his head. Um, and they did ring, but it was fine. Um, but you can, we were just aware that this was going to be a big moment because here comes the princess. And sure enough, on the day, there were hundreds of people gathered, um, bunting and banners and cheering. And um, when the moment came, this cavalcade of cars rolled up and out of the, the, the most impressive one stepped the princess. And she waved, she headed in, she did her thing, she came out, she waved. And then she was whisked away in this great big car, gone very quickly. But just imagine if, as she came out of the building, rather than turning left to get into a big, impressive car, she had instead turned right and gone down our driveway. 
And then imagine not just going down our driveway, but actually going to our front door and entering our house. And, and not just to have a cup of tea as we served her, but imagine she rolled up her um, fine gown, um, whatever, and uh, kneeled down on our kitchen floor and began to scrub the floor. It would be... Um, it would be embarrassing. She's royalty. Um, it would be outrageous. This isn't the kind of thing princesses do. And yet here she is on her hands and knees scrubbing our floor. Well, how much more so when it comes to not Princess Diana, but the king of the universe, God's son, on his hands and knees cleaning yucky feet. It is an outrageous washing. Why does he do it? Yes, because he loves his own. He is willing to put aside rank and rights in order to look after the needs of those he loves. And next week, as we continue through John 13, we'll think much more about how we should follow in those footsteps as we serve others. But as remarkable as this foot washing is, if we stop there, we miss something absolutely crucial about what is going on on this Thursday evening. We must read on. Look at verse 6. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. You see, this whole event can't just be about Dirty feet after a dusty day. Because Peter gets that level. He understands what's going on at that level. But verse 7, Jesus says, you don't understand. But then you will. What's going on here? We get a huge clue in verse 1. that sets the scene for the whole moment. It was just before the Passover Right back in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist first saw Jesus, he says, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the Jewish history, a lamb was slain once a year to remind the people of God how once, when they were in Exodus and slave to Pharaoh, God had provided a lamb for each family whose blood was shed and put on the, the, the frames of the, of the door to protect the people as God passed through the land in judgment. And a Passover lamb protects the people from their sin. And when John the Baptist says, look, there's the lamb of God, we're left wondering, what will this one do? And um, as each Passover comes around, we wondered, what will he do? And this is our third Passover. And now John says, the time has come. This, the lamb, will die. And so verse 7, it's as if Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you don't understand now. But tomorrow morning, as you see the blood, as you hear me cry out, it is finished. And as you see me die, then you will understand what I am doing for you. I have come to cleanse you from your sin. That's the point of verse 7. The hands that flung the stars into space, now holding a, a dusty, grimy foot, doing the task of a Lewis slave. Do we find that uncomfortable, outrageous? How much more so when we realize that those same hands tomorrow morning will be stretched out to receive the nails 
as this truly great one dies in our place to wash us clean from our sin. Here is love. It is an outrageous washing. And this acted parable comes before the event to help them and us understand what the cross is all about. It is an act of extraordinary love which brings um, unclean, dirty people in by washing and cleansing them. You see, before Christ found us, we were not clean and tidy and presentable. To use the image of John 13, we were like dusty, smelly feet. But Jesus doesn't look at us and say, yuck. No, he says, I can help. I will help. And he gave his life to cleanse us. And over the next three weeks, as we build up to Easter, we have a wonderful opportunity, once again, to rejoice in the outrageous love that Christ showed us by dying in our place. It is an outrageous washing. But that's not all. Our second point is this. It is an essential washing. Look at how Peter responds, verse 8. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. There is pride here, isn't there? Peter just doesn't want it to be this way. He doesn't want his master to have to kneel down and serve him because he's dirty. And if, uh, I think Peter's thinking about a physical cleansing here. If he, if he finds that hard a stomach, how much more so will he find it hard a stomach the thought that there's an even greater washing to come, an even greater humbling to come on the cross? But look at what Jesus says to Peter, verse eight. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And I think uh, we humans, and I include myself in this, I think we find this so hard. Superman has his kryptonite and Batman has the Joker, but for the human and for the Christian, so often our great enemy is our pride. Our pride says that we do not need to be washed. It stops us from freely receiving joyfully all that Christ offers us with his cleansing. And isn't that why it's so rare to find a Christian who is both proud and joyful? A few weeks ago, a number of us here this morning were at a a conference, uh, Renew South Yorkshire Conference, uh, a great day. Um, At one point, we heard from a, a lady who shared with us her story of how she became a Christian And uh, she spoke with such warmth and infectious joy. There were many stages to how she became a Christian, and I won't go into them all now, but as she talked through what happened, it became very clear that there was one point of great crisis at the center of the story, and the crisis was to do with when she realized that for her, her whole life she had been wrong. She thought that for her whole life that she was a good, respectable person. The words of John 13, that she was clean. But this crisis came when she realized that she was far from perfect. In fact, she was unclean, a sinner. And it came as a huge shock to her. But very quickly, she also realized that Christ had come 
to wash her clean from all her sin once and for all. And her life isn't easy. She describes some of the challenges. But it was clear as she spoke about Christ that she couldn't just but help smile with joy for he had served her wonderfully. I wonder for each of us here this morning, is that our story as we think about our personal relationship to Jesus? Is it our story that he has found us yucky and dirty, but he has come and cleansed us, and now we're perfectly clean? And when our friends ask us, perhaps our neighbors or those at work, and they say, come on, why is it worth being a Christian? Do we put it in these terms? I was found, I was washed, I was cleansed. I do wonder, though, this morning, in a room this size, it's very likely to be a number here who are not Christians. You're, you're very welcome amongst us. It's great to have you here. But I do wonder what you make of this offer from Jesus, this offer of washing. You see, many people in the world today are happy to talk about Jesus as being a great teacher. That's what he's called in verse 13 of John 13. Teacher. Oh, Jesus, he's, he's very wise. I'm sure he's got plenty of things to help me live a better life. Or others might even call him Lord, as he is called in verse 9, a title of great respect. And so there are many who um, are very religious about their lives, their habits, their attendance to church, trying to be a good person to impress Lord Jesus. But what does John say? Sorry, Jesus say, verse 8. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. It is a peculiar distinctive of the genuine Christian that when they look at Jesus, they see more than a teacher, more than a Lord. They also see the one who has washed them clean. An essential washing. And of course, we pray for little Reuben this morning as we give thanks for his life, that he grows up to be someone who believes this. He knows that he's been found by Jesus, washed and cleansed. And for each of us here, a great thing to pray. But also, I wonder, it's so easy for us Christians to lose our nerve on this point. You see, um, many of us live in the round near Forward. It, this is S10 country, and Forward is packed full of nice people. My neighbors are lovely. They take their bins out on time. In fact, they always take my bin out as well, which is brilliant. You know, very, very impressive people who live in S10. And so it's easy for us to lose our nerve because Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. See, the reality is that every human being needs to be washed. Even people in S10, even respectable people have a sin problem. And so John 13 helps us to remember there is an essential washing that each person needs. So let's go on talking about it and spreading the good news. Of course, Peter doesn't get it still. Verse 9. He says, Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. He's still thinking about a physical washing. He doesn't understand what's going on. And so verse 10, Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not Every one of you. 
I think verse 10 is probably the, the, the trickiest verse in this section. Um, but I think as we come to our final point into verse 10, I think the main point is clear. I think Jesus is saying that the washing he brings is a sufficient washing. You see, it's been outrageous, it's essential, and finally it's sufficient. If you like, he's saying, Peter, you are already clean. That's the point. You've had a bath, your whole body is clean. You're fine, you're sorted. But what is Jesus talking about? He's just said to Peter, you have to be washed. So how, verse 10, can Peter already be clean? Well, verse 10 can't be talking about the physical washing happening on that Thursday night with some water in a bowl because Judas also receives that physical washing on the Thursday night, but he is not cleansed. Do you see verse 11? He goes away, betrays Jesus, and he is the one who is not truly clean. So the cleansing of verse 10 can't be physical water So what is he talking about? Well, I think it helps just to flick forward one page to John chapter 15, to verse three. It's the same evening, Jesus teaching now the 11 disciples, and he says this, John 15, verse three. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. You see, that's how cleansing comes by the words of Jesus being spoken and, I think, received. And this is very important. You see, we know it's the, it's the cross where our cleansing is achieved and accomplished. That's, that's where it happens. But throughout the Bible, think back to the Old Testament. Think of the great heroes of the faith, Abraham, Moses, David. Uh, they were people who had their sins cleansed, who were righteous before God, but they, ha- they were well before the cross. How could they be forgiven? They were people who trusted and believed in the words of God. And because of that, they were clean. Of course, it's the cross where cleansing is achieved, but it's by trusting in the words of Jesus that we are connected to the work of the cross. Which is very important for us sitting here 2,000 years later, How can we access the sufficient once and for all cleansing of Jesus? It's by hearing his words and promises and believing them. And then we're clean, fully, finally, forever. And so back in John 13, verse 10, I think Peter is already clean because he has believed the words and promises of Jesus, unlike Judas, who has betrayed and turned away from Jesus. And of course, it's going to be tomorrow morning when Peter realizes how his cleansing is achieved. The point here, I think, is the washing that Jesus offers is a sufficient washing. A few weeks ago, I was flying back from Istanbul, and I found myself sitting next to a young Muslim man And um, as we got talking, it emerged that he was just coming back from a pilgrimage in Saudi Arabia. He had shaved his head and he explained why. He had taken part in a a ritual washing ceremony which needed him to shave his head first and then he was covered in water. Uh, He showed me the before and after picture of his haircut. It was quite a remarkable transformation. Um, I asked him why he'd gone on the pilgrimage. why, Why fly so far from Manchester to Saudi Arabia? Why have your hair cut and be covered in water? And he said, I did it to be cleansed from my sin. Now, I wish I had thought of this answer on the plane, but I didn't. 
But isn't that what all religion tells us? We have to do things. We have to uh, obey a pattern and achieve a certain performance in order to be cleansed. And if we do everything just the right way, then just maybe we will be cleansed. But Jesus would say to us, John 13 verse 10, that you are clean. You've had a bath, your whole body is clean. And we know it comes to us simply by believing the promises of Jesus, trusting in his cross. It's wonderful news, final, complete, eternal cleansing. But I think just to push verse 10 a bit further, and it is a tricky verse, but I wonder if it's picking up this issue. I had a friend a little while ago who became a Christian wonderfully, and uh, there was a very clear moment in his life when he, he definitely did repent of his sins and he turned to Christ and received forgiveness. And in that moment, he was fully and finally cleansed. Wonderful. But then I saw him a few days later and, and he looked upset and he said to me, Pete, I've blown it. The next day, I messed up. I, I did something I shouldn't have done. And I've, I've lost my cleanliness. I think that's John 13, verse 10. I think Jesus would say to that new Christian, you've had a bath, you are completely clean. You only need to wash your feet. I think here in verse 10, the idea of feet is, as we go through life following Jesus, our feet come into contact with the grime and dust of this world. I think it's referring to an ongoing return to the washing of Jesus to receive that sufficient washing again and again and again. I want to say to that new Christian, There is a sufficient washing for all your sin. Both looking back and looking forward, keep coming back to Jesus. He's covered all of it, even what will happen in the future. I I think of the words that John himself wrote in his letter in 1 John, towards the end of the Bible, verse 7 of chapter 1, John writes, Jesus has purified us from all sin. You see, we've been washed fully and finally, a sufficient washing. But then the next verse, verse eight, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what should we do? Verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us. What do we do with our sin? To become a Christian, we come to the washing of Christ. As we go on being a Christian, we come to the washing of found in Christ. It is a sufficient washing for every Christian for all time. It's wonderful news, isn't it? We do struggle to believe it, don't we? I, um, I think as Christians, we, we burden under the assumption that we have to earn our cleansing, even after we've been saved. Isn't that why we find it so hard to be honest with other Christians about our sin? I think of our small group all our small groups here, it's very hard to open up about our sin. I wonder if if it's because we doubt the sufficient washing of Christ for us at the cross. You see, if we believe we're we're completely washed, then we can be honest and say, look, yeah, I've messed up, but I know I'm, I'm cleansed. Absence is hard, particularly when Christ feels absent from his people and we feel disconnected in a broken and confusing world. But let us not doubt the great love of Christ seen on this Thursday evening in his outrageous, essential, and sufficient washing. 
Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning that when your son saw us, he didn't turn away in disgust. But we thank you that he stepped in and served. Father, please help us to believe this morning that in Christ we have a sufficient eternal, forever washing. And please, this morning, help us to be people, even though this world will be hard and we struggle with our prayers and with our circumstances and with what the world thinks of us, please help us to be a people who are radiantly confident in your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.